0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the, the pastor here. And again, today we're celebrating what we call the Lord's Supper. And that's especially fitting because in the middle of our series on the Gospel of John, we've actually been looking these last few weeks at the night that Jesus himself instituted that meal, the taking of bread and a cup, and instructing his followers to eat and drink in remembrance of his body, his blood, broken and shed on our behalf. But looking forward to what Jesus is about to do, his disciples are a little unsettled, and I'm guessing that we would have been as well. They're troubled by the fact that their leader and and the one that they've been following as their savior is, is about to leave them as sheep without a shepherd. And yet, Jesus going away actually turns out to be the key to his coming back better than ever before. We saw last week that it's how he he makes a home for us that we might dwell in him. And ultimately how he's able to make a home in us through the Spirit. Spirit. And and he illustrates what the relationship, what that relationship will be like at the front end of chapter 15, John 15. That's where we're going to pick up this morning. And and I'm just going to read the first few verses there, not because we're going to focus on them particularly, but but because they set up what we are going to look at in what follows. And as some of you are turning there, let me just point out um, that chapter 14 ends with a statement from Jesus saying to his disciples, Rise, let us go from here. It's puzzled many over the years. Why? Because the red letters just keep on flowing. But there's a sense in which on their way from where they were in what was sometimes, what is sometimes referred to as the upper room, from where they were to where they're going in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus on that walk probably catches a glimpse of of a grapevine, which becomes the central image of that illustration. And some have even imagined that this vine is the one on their way past the temple looking up through the gates that they would have seen embroidered on the veil that separated God from God's people. But rather than use that vine to reinforce this separation from God that humanity has known from almost the very beginning of our history, Jesus uses that vine to speak of that relationship remade. And so Jesus says, beginning in verse 1, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch In me, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This is the word of the Lord. By the end of this section, we see that abiding in Christ, if you were to read on, uh, having Christ abide in us, is what enables us to love one another. That becomes the focus again. That's what it says in verse 17, all all throughout. But then in verse 17, these things I command you to abide in me, I in you, to bear much fruit. Why? So that you will love one another. But this relationship is also this abiding in Christ, Christ abiding in us. This relationship is also what elicits the hatred of the world. That's what we're going to focus on today. That's, that's where we're going to pick up in verse 18. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, many of our hearts coming here this morning are broken today. Because as much as our relationship with you has been remade, as much as through your Son we've, been, we've found our home in him, and he's made his home in us, and we've tasted what it's like to, for the first time, be a part of a home, a household where, where we're no longer at enmity with everyone around us. Yet, as members of your household, as followers of your son, it's placed us in enmity with so many others. Though we've become brothers and sisters here to one another, Our relationship to Christ has likewise been the breaking point with our own kin, with our co-workers, members of our community, with our culture. And so I ask today, even as Jesus turns to address this next, the hatred of the world, I ask that you would speak to our hearts. that we might see how that same spirit that empowers us to love one another is our comfort amidst that hatred of the world. And I pray this in the name of the one who bore that hatred on our behalf. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, I wonder how many of us have... um, known what it's like to face the consequences for following Christ. Not the benefits, but the cost. I, I mentioned a few weeks ago a friend of mine who will soon return to Pakistan to to risk the rest of his life serving his Savior. And yet the cost for for following Christ is not only limited to those living overseas, but is something being felt today closer and closer to home. Even a few weeks, just a little over a week ago, The New Yorker published an article entitled Chick-fil-A's Creepy Infiltration of New York City. I don't know how many have seen it, but a fourth location has opened in that city with plans for at least a half dozen more. They're doing very well, but at least one author has now voiced in a rather reputable publication that along with what he calls the company's pervasive Christian traditionalism, that it's more than a little off-putting. But alongside the, the, the culture wars in which our, our country is caught up in, I wonder today, alongside of that, how many of us have faced the consequences for following Christ at a more personal level in our relationships with friends or family members, with coworkers, or even acquaintances, or or somebody you don't even know. Because I imagine that the sorrow of Jesus going away is multiplied for us as much as it was for those who followed him first by the fact that not only are we presumably in that left alone, but we're left alone at enmity with the world around us. I wonder how many of us, know the consequences for following Christ. And yet what we'll find in the rest of this passage, this rather lengthy passage, picking up again in verse 18, is that the promise of Jesus' spirit taking up residence inside of us more than just how Jesus loves us and how we're empowered to love one another, it also explains first where the hatred of the world comes from. It explains, second, from what we're to do in the midst of that. And third, why we can have joy in spite of it. And it's worth saying, uh, uh, it's worth saying we're not looking at this because because in some way I or we should be interested in in playing the victim or or crying out, woe is me, or woe are us, but because better understanding the hatred of the world for Jesus and, and through that, better understanding the hatred of the world for his followers will enable us to better stand up under it. And so again, we'll look today at where such hatred comes from what to do in the midst of it, and why we can have joy in spite of it. First, where such hatred comes from. And I, I want to pick up again in verse 18 where Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And this is, this is the answer as to what, why it hates us, where such hatred comes from. Essentially, the world hates Jesus' followers because we were a part of it and because being a part of it no longer says something about it. Sort of like that awkward moment that I had with my dad when he visited uh, from New York, where Chick-fil-A apparently is taking over the world. And and we were running around, and in the chaos of running around, I couldn't find the gel for my hair, and so I went and grabbed a hat, But, but it made for an awkward moment when I jumped in the car wearing a 2016 World Series championship hat for the Cubs. And that, that wouldn't be so awkward for, for, for many of us, except for the fact that sitting there on the dashboard was a hat made of a darker shade of blue with the New York Yankees symbol on it. And you've got to understand that I grew up watching faithfully with my dad. I don't watch it many Cubs games. We don't, we don't even do TV much. But, but, but I grew up watching faithfully with my dad, the Yankees, in their glory years. 1999, 98, 99, 2000, all the way to 2004, before I left home. It was the glory years of the Yankees. But wearing that 2016 World Series championship hat of lighter shade of blue said something that, although I may have been part of that Yankees world at some point, I have since been brought out of it and, at least in 2016, proved to be on the right side of history. (laughs) Well, how much more, though, how much more will we elicit the hatred of the world when we find ourselves no longer under the judgment we still claim it faces. To bind yourself to Christ is to admit that I once was under judgment, am under judgment no longer, but those still in the world are still under that judgment. So don't be surprised. This is where such hatred comes from. There's something more, though, and Jesus gets to it in verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word coming to Christ, they, they will also keep yours when you call them to come to Christ. But all these things they will do to you, persecuting you, opposing you, hating you, on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. This hatred comes not only from the fact that that we were once of the world, but are no longer, and therefore stand as a testimony against the world, but from the fact that the world does not know God. Statistics suggest that 85% of the world believes that, God exists in some shape, size, or form. I know there's that vocal 15% minority, very vocal. 85% though of the world believes in God some shape, size, or form. And yet the hatred of the world, especially as it's leveraged against Christians, just as it was leveraged against our Christ, is because the world does not know the God they supposedly believe in. So don't be surprised, but neither be swayed. It's in the face of such hatred that that we often begin to doubt whether we're on the right team or not. But Jesus speaks to this as well and says in verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin because, because they've heard me. He says, whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Because of what Jesus said and because of what they saw. Don't be surprised when the world Hates you if you bind yourself to Christ. But neither be swayed. It's understandable. But that doesn't mean it's justifiable. So don't be surprised. Don't be swayed. The hatred of the world comes from what you're following Christ says about them. And from the fact that they don't know the one you follow. That's where it comes from. But second, what are we to do in the midst of such hatred? What are we to do when we're caught in the, in the, in the crossfire, or, or perhaps even more so when we're caught in the crosshairs? What are we to do in the midst of such hatred? Well, Jesus' answer is framed within a discussion about the Spirit, right? From last time we saw that the Spirit is the one who embodies Christ's presence in us, and because of the cross is how he takes up residence in us. Spirit is the one who who dwells in us and leads us and guides us, and who Jesus calls the helper because he helps us. He he helps us to do what we've been left to do, to to love one another, but there's more than that. We're to love one another, but, but what are we to do with the world? What are we to do in the face of such hatred? Listen to Jesus' words in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And, and the, the place, see, of the, of the Spirit in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, in the face of the world's hatred... Is as a witness. But as God's Spirit dwells in God's people, they're the ones through whom He bears witness. This is not something the Spirit just does out there. He's at work, no doubt. But but the point that John is making is that the Spirit bears witness and you also will bear witness, i.e. you're the one through whom he will bear witness. In the face of opposition, we're not to run, we're not to bend, we're not to break, but to be bold in our witness, not least, of what we've seen and heard. This was Christ's call to his first followers because he says, you've been with me from the beginning. But, but through them, this is the call to us. We are called in the face of opposition to bear witness. Like one poet has put it, let your kingdom come, your will on earth be done. In this land and in my heart till at last all is one. That as I wait for you to come, for your will to last be done, let me never cease to speak of the everlasting one. That's what we're called to do as the Spirit does it through us. Not just to stand, And just make a statement by standing that we were once under judgment and now we're not. And by the way, just by inference, that means you still are. But to witness, to bear witness. Jesus says in the opening of chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues out of society, out of the center of all you know, the comfort of, of, of all you're, you're embedded in. Indeed, he says, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And the picture here is of a guy named Paul. Some of you know the story. That, that, that's who Jesus is looking forward to, a guy who, who thought he was serving God by severing the heads of everybody who was following God's son. Jesus says, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, he says in verse 4, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Do not be surprised. Do not be swayed. And as you stand, do so, Jesus says, as a witness for me. But listen to Jesus' words. Because the, the content of our witness is not simply supposed to be as witnesses for Christ. It is supposed to be as witnesses against the world. He says in the end of verse 4, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And Jesus says in verse 8: And when he comes, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world. This is his witness, right? He will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness. And concerning judgment, concerning sin, he says, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And the content of of the Spirit's witness is supposed to be the content of our own. The Spirit bears witness as it bears witness through us. And in the face of opposition, it's not just a witness for Christ and what Jesus has done for us, as important as that is, but a witness against the world about what Christ will do to all who fail to follow him. It's a witness concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, that the the world is guilty before God because it walked away from God and has failed to come back to God by believing in His Son, by believing in Jesus. That's what it means to testify concerning sin. Concerning righteousness, and that the, the righteousness of the world, what it thinks is right, is not a righteousness at all because no one has done as they ought, despite what anybody wants to say. And concerning judgment, that its judgments, seen most particularly in its judgment of Jesus, that he wasn't who he said he was, its judgments are from the pit of hell. Because that's who judged Christ first. And so the world will face the judgment that the devil has faced. And the witness of God's spirit is again carried out through the witness of God's people. God doesn't take up residence in us for nothing. And it's not just for us to be able to love one another. It's so that we might stand. It's not just to keep us from doing what we're not supposed to do. What we're sup- not supposed to do, uh, it's to equip us to do what we are. To not do what we're not supposed to do. And see, the word, um, the word martyr, this is the word that's translated here, witness, testify. testify. The word martyr originally just meant that, witness. But it got so bound up with the the consequence of death that it it didn't take long in Christianity before the two couldn't be separated from one another. So when we talk about martyr, we think death. One of the earliest accounts of martyrdom after the writings of the New Testament, is found in a document that tells the story of, among others, two young women named Perpetua and Felicitas. And I just want to tell you that story for a moment because it illustrates this point. It tells of their arrest and their time in prison and of, of their, their countless times that they rejected the offer to be released if only they would renounce their commitment to Jesus. But the climax of the account is is when they are led together into the amphitheater where they're they're about to face their final sentencing of being torn to bits by wild animals. Both are young mothers at the time. One is praising God on her way into the arena, praising God that she had just given birth, didn't have to die with her, her baby in the womb. And yet when they stood before the official who was overseeing their sentence, this is what they said. They said, today thou judgest us, but someday God will surely judge thee. Can you imagine this as a young mom? We got a lot of young moms around here. Can you imagine this? As a young mom, being led into an arena where you are about to die, not a nice, quick death or a comfortable death in your sleep, but you are about to die over a painful process of being torn to pieces. And yet your hope is so securely fixed in someone else that you can sit there under judgment and see past that, that one day a worse judgment will fall, but not on you. That's what it means to bear witness, to testify against the world. And that's what we're called to do. Why? Because it's the world's only hope. There is no other way. This is what we're called to do as those in whom the Spirit of God has taken up residence. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. But don't either be swayed. And yet, we're to take up in the midst of that not a posture of running away or bending uh, bending or breaking, but one of declaring what the world sits under. Where this hatred comes from, an ignorance of, of God and a disdain for, for godliness, what we're to do in the midst of it, stand as witnesses against a world that refuses to bend the knee. And third, why we can have joy in spite of it. This is where it all comes together. Jesus talks about a growing sorrow in his followers begun because he's going away. Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? But certainly the hatred of the world simply adds insult to injury. So, so why can we have joy in the midst of it? And, and the dialogue that ensues brings this out. But I want to pick up in chapter 16, verse 20. If you look there with me, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Do you hear what he's saying? Why can you have joy in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of hatred? How do you have joy in the midst of that? When it's not just friends, but family members. And not just family members, but coworkers, acquaintances. The entire culture is set against this. Because the story's not done. Because the story isn't done. He says, I'm going away. So no wonder you're sad. But keep in mind that I'm going away to do what's necessary for you to be, to be born as it was. To be born again, as he says elsewhere. To earn you the right to my presence. I'm going to the cross. And that's something to celebrate. Because when I come back, you will never lose that presence again. He not only earns the right to it, but when he comes back from going to the cross, going to his Father when He ascends finally back to the Father a second time, that He will make that presence available without end. And in that sense, once He's won for us, not only the right to rest in Him, but to have Him through His Spirit take up residence in us, your joy, if you you have Christ, your joy can never be taken away. So he says in verse 23, and this is really the height of all this. You've heard Jesus talk before There will come a day when you need not ask anything more. But listen to these words. He says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. That's a different world, right? I ask a ton of stuff from Jesus, right? I go, I, I got a big list, I'm guessing you have a big list too. But listen to what he says. There will come a day in that day when you will ask nothing of me, presumably because there's nothing left to ask. Especially in light of all of what the disciples have been asking before. Where are you going? Why can we not follow? There will come a day when there's nothing left to ask. Show us the Father. That is enough, they said. To which Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And all of those questions up until this moment have been meaningless. But going to the cross, Jesus will secure all of what those questions were after. Because when he goes to do what only he can do, we will have all we ever wanted if all we ever wanted was Jesus. A lot of us are running after in this world. Wanting from God all the things God can give us and we subtly slip into forgetting that what we're meant to want is God himself. And this, what Jesus is talking about here, isn't about his second coming. It's not for someday when we finally get to heaven. Give me all I want now, and when I get to heaven, I'll be satisfied with God himself. This is meant to be for today. This is meant to be for today. And so for those of us who are continuing to run after the things of this world to not be satisfied, I think now is a perfect time as ever to ask if we know the one we are supposedly serving. I began with Chick-fil-A. Let me end there as we turn to the bread and the cup. The Babylon Bee, many of you will know, is a fake news outlet aimed aimed in the best of senses at evangelical Christians. A little over a year ago, published an article entitled Confirmed Chick fil A Open on Sundays in Heaven. This is what it reads. An angelic representative for Chick-fil-A confirmed Wednesday morning that its restaurants located in heaven are open seven days a week, rather than closing on Sundays as the fast food chain's earthly locations are known for. The statement was released in response to literally millions, it says, of prayers and petitions from Christians concerned about the operating hours of the establishment in the heavenly realm. The heavenly messenger confirmed that there is no death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor excellent chicken sandwich establishments closing their doors for 24 hours each week for the former things have passed away, (laughs) adding also that normal business hours do not apply in glory and that the beloved purveyor of moist chicken never closes. It just wouldn't be paradise, he says, if citizens of the kingdom couldn't rely on getting a warm chicken sandwich 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And yet I wonder how what makes this so funny, I wonder if this isn't actually true of us in some way. Maybe not because we're, we're so concerned or so going after a chicken sandwich, although I've been there on Sundays and I've driven up to the door and I have been utterly disappointed. And yet maybe that's not so much what we're going after, but because we're looking for, for something else other than Christ because we're not satisfied with Christ. As we come to the table, I invite the servers forward, and we take the bread and take the cup together after we're done singing the two songs. I pray that we would need nothing more. I pray that we would be satisfied with nothing less than the the presence of God provided for us in the death of Christ, given to us by the power of the Spirit. That in Christ, sorrow would be changed to joy. That we might bear witness that without Christ, the world is lost and under a judgment that we once ourselves knew. to him who loved us by going to the cross, who bore the hate of the world and bore our hatred as well, take and eat, take and drink in remembrance of him. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, our um, present experience of opposition, persecution, the hatred of the world is nothing compared to the hatred that was levied against your Son, experienced by your Son. And yet I thank you, Father, that when the opposition against Jesus had reached its height remarkably on that night his attention was not simply on what he would face the following day but on what we as his followers would face after him. And I ask today in the midst of rising opposition, rising persecution, rising hatred that we would hear what he has said of where that comes from, what we're to do in the midst of it, and why we might have joy in spite of it for His glory and for our good and for the good of the world that needs Him so much. In His name I pray. Amen. Go in peace.